Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. A look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. A lot of the wealth that accrues to the very wealthy has been plundered from the commons. It's been plundered from the ecological commons or the social commons. Even if they don't acknowledge the commons, they certainly benefit from it. The more wealth people have, the more disconnected they are from the commonwealth, from the community, from authentic relationships. Privilege and wealth is a disconnection drug. So, you know, part of my message to people with tremendous wealth is how much do you really need? And how is this wealth actually keeping you apart? from the rest of humanity. And my invitation is come home. You know, wealthy folks, come home. Bring your wealth out of the shadows. Help build a public banking sector. Help build vibrant community economic institutions. Help build the commonwealth. That's our very special guest today, Chuck Collins, uh, who's just published his latest book entitled The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Spend Millions to Hide Trillions. And he comes to the subject having done a rather remarkable thing. He gave away his family inheritance to the Oscar Mayer Wiener fortune to engage the world on a much less privileged level. He now is on the faculty of the Institute for Policy Studies and an expert on systemic inequality. So we'll be talking with Chuck Collins in just a moment. But first, let's check in with Ellen to see what's going on uh, economically with uh, the rest of the world. Ellen, how are you? I, I'm okay. <laughs> so thanks. Well, I, yes, so there's a lot going on in the financial world at the moment, a lot of uncertainties. Uh, there was a large hedge fund called Ar Archegos that um, just crashed and took some big banks with it, including, or took, you know, billions of dollars, $30 billion, I guess, in derivatives uh, from the counterparties. There's a, some say as much as a $2.3 trillion derivative bubble out there still. We knew there was that like 10 years ago and it's still hanging out there, uh, threatening to crash. Um, so this was $30 billion. The problem is that the counterparties, I've written about this before, but derivatives are kind of complicated, but you've got, you know, parties on it. They're basically bets. And so if one party can't pay up their bet, then the other party loses the money. And then they may have other bets that are all contingent. They're anticipating that they'll win some, you know, they hedge their bets. That's what hedge funds do. So that's, $30 billion gone and $2 trillion uh, hanging there <laughs> in the balance. And then we have um, concerns about uh, whether the dollar may lose its status as, uh, as reserve currency globally. The digital yuan may replace it, or maybe the IMF's special drawing rights could replace it. Uh, there's concerns that we're going to a technocratic 
global economy under the great reset of the World Economic Forum, which are 3000 plus big corporate entities and individuals. Um, and we have the greatest wealth gap in history, which is what, uh, of course, Chuck Collins will be talking about. Uh, the stock market is at all time highs. Bitcoin is at all time highs. Gold, I think, is at all time highs. And meanwhile, 100,000 businesses uh, shut their doors permanently in 2020. So the middle class is like virtually gone. I mean, it's totally been under attack and billionaires have added a trillion dollars to their uh, to their wealth just in the last year which is huge and among those they're the the um, <clears throat> let's see the four top are jeff bezos elon musk bill gates and mark zuckerberg uh jeff bezos alone added uh, 70 billion dollars in one year I mean, for any normal, anybody in the 90%, a million dollars would make you feel secure, you know, and a billion dollars would make you feel quite wealthy. Now, what in his total net worth is $182 billion. Yeah. What can you do with that kind of money? Virtually anything you want. I mean, you could buy a politicians, you can buy a uh, regulators and uh, universities and laboratories and just about anything you want. So obviously, democracy, not just the middle class, but democracy is under attack because we've seen studies that public policy is not determined by the public anymore. It's determined by wealthy lobbyists. And so that's where, where we are right now. And it's getting worse. And, and it has been that way for the last 40 years, according to the, some this, this study that you're referring to about how public policy doesn't reflect public interest. Uh, it's stunning that eight people on the planet control more than half of all of the world's assets. Just eight. eight. You only mentioned four of them. There are four others <laughs> somewhere. Uh, but that is really extraordinary. So we live at this time, this evolutionary economic time where so much has to change for the rest of the world to work. Uh, and yet uh, it's being, as Chuck says, hoarded. Uh, by uh, an entire industry there that there's an entire wealth defense industry that has been created around such enormous wealth. Right. And um, so others, <laughs> Jeff, uh, the Elon Musk added 139 billion to his wealth. So he's got now got $164 billion. Bill Gates added 124 billion or sorry, his, he had a 26 billion, his total is now 124 billion. Mark Zuckerberg, um, uh, of course, CEO of Facebook, uh, added 40 billion, so he's up to 95 billion. And um, Bill Gates is now the largest, uh, in, in the little clip that we, you did on uh, Chuck Collins, he talked about the comments and how the comments, you know, we no longer have much of the comments. So, uh, commons used to be land and resources that used to be publicly owned and controlled. Well, Bill Gates is now the largest landowner in the country. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that Jeff Bezos owns the skies. He's got um, 12,000 12, satellites up there and is got a supply to put 30 more up there. So he's circling the earth, um, peppering us with 
5G, that's the idea. And you have all these public interest groups that are opposed, but again, public policy is not going to be determined by these little groups that go to their local legislators. They're, it's big, big money is, seems to be ruling the world right now. So that, that's where we are. And uh, you could get <laughs> quite nervous and depressed about all this. But um, the good thing about it, of course, Chuck has some remedies for how we can um, peel back some of that wealth. Uh, and clearly our system was not working all that well. And so when you have crises, that's when that's an opportunity for change. And in order to get, we need to get back the commons in some way. And of course, we think public banking is a as a major major factor in all that. I was relieved to not relieved, but uh, pleased to see that Chuck uh, as is actively working uh, in the public uh, banking sphere as well. Uh, but that he, in talking about one of you know his antidotes, uh, is to get involved with the community, to get involved with the, the commons, to uh, ask oneself as a wealthy person, what kind of a legacy do I want to leave? You know, the questions that are foundational for uh, any individual is, what does my life really amount to? And who do I, you know, what, what do I want to achieve? How much, how much money do you need? His uh, recommendation for that is, um, is pretty clear. And of course, uh, genuinely earned with his uh, sacrificing, giving up so much uh, of his own wealth for the sake of um, building a life of service and, and participation and community. Well, Ellen, um, let's talk to Chuck Collins about his book, uh, The Wealth Hoarders, how billionaires spend millions, millions to hide trillions. And I think trillions amounts to about uh, $38 trillion that are offshore uh, at this particular time, certainly a product of a trajectory of private capital that started out, uh, uh, of course, hundreds of years ago, literally, but certainly in the United States uh, in the in the 20th century, with the with the with the Federal Reserve, the central banking system that has been serving that industry. Um, hence, the importance of the public bank initiatives and movement uh, that's helping to kind of reshape some of the institutional structures. Uh, that we're going to need to sustain ourselves as a as a community. So, Ellen, uh, thanks. Let's let's talk to Chuck. Okay, thank you. We're very pleased to be talking with Chuck Collins, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington D.C and a national expert on economic inequality, tax policy, and class privilege and power. <laughs> he is the author of several popular books on this topic, including his latest 2021 book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to High Trillions. It explains in plain English how wealth hoarding works and explores, explores how we can stop this corruption. Previous books include one called Born on Third Base, and that is what is particularly unique about you, Chuck. Uh, the fact that you were an heir to the Oscar Mayer Wiener fortune and gave it up to charity. So, so I think that's a good place to start uh, with your personal story, which is quite interesting. So what motivated you to, 
um, to give it up. Uh, but first, uh, welcome, and it's great to be talking to you. <laughs> Thank you, and thanks to both of you for the work you've been doing to build the public banking sector in the United States. But but yeah, I, I, I uh, have the uh, advantage of being born on third base, winning the lottery at birth. Uh, and the way that connects to this book is that I, it gave me an insight into the role of the trusted financial advisors that surround many wealthy families and the role that they play in sort of making the, the growth of wealth and the transmission of wealth to the next generation possible. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think at an early age, I was sort of turned off to this idea like, oh, we're just going to have these inherited wealth dynasties, wealthy families will not just be wealthy for two generations, they'll be wealthy forever. And that was sort of, you know, kind of offended my sense of what was going to be good for both for me individually and for society. So, so that, 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 you know, this whole uh, wealth defense industry is what I started to see at a very early age as a kind of corrosive force in our society. Uh, well, that makes you a saint in my book. I mean, very few people, I think, would give up that sort of, sort of fortune. It, it, people would be envious, you know, of your position. So there, so there must be something uncomfortable about being in that position. I, I'm just interested in your sort of personal feelings. Yeah, I, I think I think if you know, I think I was attuned to the growing inequalities in America. I, you know, I grew up in a suburb, really wealthy suburb of Detroit. And so I just remember going across the sort of uh, class and race lines back, you know, I'd go to the Tiger Stadium to watch a baseball game and you drive into Michigan Avenue in Detroit. And so even at a young age, I was like, whoa, this, you know, in 1967, there was an uprising, the so-called riots in Detroit. You know, all those were things that sort of formed me and made me feel like the problem is too much inequality. Um, and, and I don't think um, I, what I did was particularly saintly or even, um, uh, you know, risk taking because the reality is when you grow up with multi-generational advantage, the money is just part of the package, but it's not at all the whole thing. I mean, I had so many other advantages flowing to me that... Uh, uh, I, I, I come to appreciate since I don't have the money, <laughs> um, still, still sort of benefiting from, from that system, if you will. Early on in your, in your book, you illustrate uh, uh, the conversations you've had with uh, some of the old blue blood wealth and, uh, uh, and how they uh, told you just never spend the principal uh, to, to keep things uh, going. Uh, and so the, as I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald said, you know, the, the rich aren't like us. Uh, uh, there is a mindset there, and part of it, I think, is involves uh, never having in, or that there's never enough money. There are mm -hmm. people who who are who can be content with a certain amount of money, and then there are some that just it's just never enough. It isn't that a factor in why this perpetuates that. How would you characterize it? Yeah, I think I, what I've noticed, and this is more in, in recent years, is you know people say, well, why is it that people who have every possible need that they can imagine met through their wealth, still focus on getting more. Um, and I think part of it is some people for whom that's their, their way they keep score and measure their self-worth. Mm. Uh, for some people, it's that they may have some real deep insecurity that will never, they'll never be enough. Now that sounds ridiculous, but if you think about it in the United States, there, 
we really don't have a very decent social safety net. People, people do worry about becoming, even when you're wealthy, people worry about becoming destitute through illness, uh, job loss, divorce, you know, and that the, their circumstances could change. So there's a, there's maybe this tiny little rational element to holding on tightly, even though, again, as I would say, the worst thing that's going to happen for some of these people is they're going to be middle class in America. But for them, that would be, you know, a tragic loss. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's some, there's some, you know, and then maybe there's something about immortality, you know, like we all die, we all, you know, you know, you can't take it with you. But the idea that you could accumulate wealth and create some sort of legacy and, you know, build the the Ellen Brown monument and the wing of the art museum or whatever, you know, that 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 you will live on forever in the hearts and minds of people. Well, so there's a little bit of that going on. So I don't mean to be overly pop psychology here, but I think there's there's a sort of underlying insecurity there with that keeps people from being able to say, oh, I have enough. I have enough. I was interested in one story. You were talking about a woman named Dee who had introduced you to the family office concept where wealthy people hide their wealth with a battery of accountants and lawyers, et cetera. But anyway, you had mentioned something about, well, they would put it in charitable trust, and but they don't advertise it. And you said, well, so how do people find you, you know, that need the charity? And she said, well, it's not a question of you call us, we'll call you. In other words, they are choosing where they put their money. um, I know there's this thing called the giving pledge where billionaires, uh, you know, like I think it was founded by Jeff uh, Jeff Gates, um, are supposed to put half their wealth into charities, but they're not, they don't put them in. It's not like giving it away to uh, food banks and um, places that go directly to people who desperately need it, they give it to their own trusts, which they are CEOs of. These are profit, they can be profit generating trusts. And basically they're donating to things that help their own investments or their own powers, you know, whatever it is they want to dominate. And we know they dominate uh, politics and, you know, they have huge influence over the media and et cetera, politics. So you, you have um, talked about that whole industry in your book. And uh, of course, what we're particularly interested in are the remedies, you know, how do we break this? But first, do you, do you want to uh, explain a little bit about this business? Yeah. That yeah. We, most people don't know about? I mean, um, you know, uh, in the case of of D and and people who have family offices, they they have private family trusts that are, you know, sort of holding wealth, and the wealth sort of belongs to the beneficiaries that stay in the family. But then there's also these charitable foundations and donor advised funds, and 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 in in this case, this is an interesting part of this, which is wealthy people do give money to charity. Uh, and they get a, a very generous tax break. Uh, in fact, the wealthier you are, the bigger the tax break you receive. Uh, for every dollar a billionaire gives to charity, we estimate some 74 cents of every dollar is lost tax revenue, meaning you and me, the rest of the taxpayers are kind of chipping in for that. Hmm. Um, so the, in that case, the, it isn't their money anymore, technically. They've given it away and it can only go eventually to a qualified charity. But the problem is it gets warehoused. 
in these private family foundations that nobody knows about because they're not advertised. There's no, you know, they're not listed anywhere. You, you don't know where to find them. Uh, as Dee said, we'll call you, uh, don't call us. Or uh, they're in donor advised funds, which are another intermediary where once you've put the money in and taken your tax break, there's no timeline or obligation that you give that money to a qualified charity. So we're seeing wealthy families building up these, it's another form of their dynastic wealth. In this case, it's their charitable giving and their, you know, there's a very minimal requirement. If you have a family foundation, you have to give away 5% a year, but otherwise it's becomes an extension of their power and influence. And I don't write enough about that in this book, but I write, a, we, we do a lot of research at the Institute for Policy Studies on how philanthropy and charity are kind of being corrupted by big donors. You know, most people, when they give their money away, they give it directly to the charity. They give it directly to the food bank. The wealthier you are, the more likely you are to put it in one of these donor controlled intermediaries. Um, so that, that, that's troubling because yeah, we're, we're subsidizing. That's our tax dollars at work. And it's just sitting there, not going out. And particularly during a pandemic, you know, when we really need that money to kind of help these local nonprofits, uh, it's even more morally reprehensible that it's just piled up and not going anywhere. Right. And you've pointed out, I think that the, the billionaire class, their wealth has gone up by a third or something just in the last year, which is shocking when Whereas most people's, you know, most people are really struggling. So the wealth divide is just getting worse and worse. And then you've talked about remedies. There are a couple of bills that are promising. I know, of course, our thing is public banking. And so in 2008, 2009, they came out with regulations, but the regulations are oppressive to the smaller banks. And so the smaller banks didn't have the staff to do it, like reporting, et cetera. So they'd wind up selling out to the big banks. So these regulations were something that only the big giants could handle and the smaller ones couldn't. So we don't want to have put taxes on businesses or whatever that's going to hurt the little guy. So um, what, what do you propose on that? I know Elizabeth Warren had a good bill that you promoted in one article or has. Well, I do think, you know, there's how do you build up the good? And that's where I feel like the public banking work is like, how do you build up a more democratically accountable finance system to meet our credit needs? And I feel like that's where your work and the work of the public banking movement is, is a piece of the solution. And then there's the, what I would call shutting down the bad. And what, the one thing I point out is this whole system of illicit finance and sequestered wealth and wealth hiding it's not like a sideshow in the financial system. It's the main stage uh, that, that this system that we're talking about is, has just metastasized, mushroomed over particularly the last 15 years. Um, so, you know, what are some of the solutions? First, I think it's, it's important to understand that there is this wealth defense industry, professional- yeah, I should have let you go into that more. If yeah. you, if you... If you would, that would be great. And then maybe we do that and then we could talk about remedies because, yeah, yeah, great. You know, and, and uh, what some social scientists call a wealth defense industry. So these are the tax attorneys, the accountants, the wealth managers, the family offices that are working 
as I say, they're paid millions to hide trillions. They're working for the richest people on the planet to make it appear on paper that they don't have as much money as they really do. And so they use offshore tax havens, they use trusts, they use shell companies, they use kind of a whole shell game of tools, often all the same tools uh, to hide that money. So that's important to understand that there's a, a professional industry, people who get up every morning, who go to work to defend the wealth of the very wealthy. So I think that is part of the this importance of our discussion is they're a class, they're an, they're an interest group. And they will say, hey, look, we're just helping obey the law. We're just obeying the law. But what I try to point out is they write the laws, they write the rules, and they create these tax loopholes to skirt the law. And, uh, and they also lobby to keep oversight away. And so actually one of the first really important solutions is is enforcement. Um, you know, the IRS, which, you know, most of us, you know, nobody's excited about, yay, the IRS, but actually the IRS has a really important role here. They need to oversee how rich people are avoiding taxes and, and be able to have the ability to uh, understand these complex tax dodges and and go in and say, no, you can't do that. That's not allowed. Shut it down. Uh, you need to pay your fair share of taxes. Uh, the commissioner of the IRS last week said there's a trillion dollar tax gap, meaning if they were properly enforcing the law, they would be bringing in a trillion dollars, most of it from this richest one-tenth of 1%. So that's just one important fix that we need to take on right now. On that aspect of public policy, you know, we it was a wonderful study done a couple of years ago out of Princeton Northwestern saying that, you know, the the public interest was uh, uh, statistically insignificant uh, in evidence of how public policy gets created. So as you say, money makes the policy, and of course, it has such enormous power. Obviously, they're not willing to uh, put a stop to it. So what are we looking at here? I mean, some will say, well, it almost just has to be a revolution for, we like to say they got the money, but we have the people. <laughs> Is that really a, a viable sort of a standoff? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, you're pointing out a really unfortunate thing, which is our political system has been captured by these big money interests. And it's not necessarily that they have an affirmative agenda. In fact, a lot of their agenda is to stop good things from happening. Uh, and that's often the case, you know, if you think, well, the, the people, what is it that most people want? Well, we want to have a much higher minimum wage. Most people would like to live in a society more like Sweden than the United States, where there's sort of a social safety net, uh, where you don't, you know, become an indentured servant if you go to college, uh, where there's no college debt, um, and where rich people pay their fair share of taxes. And because of our current political system, They've blocked those changes, even where 70, 80% of the population support, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax idea, which Ellen, you were alluding to, that's including more, a majority of Republicans support this, this important idea, and yet it's being blocked. Now, I'm actually optimistic right now that there are cracks in that system. Uh, there's certainly cracks on this topic that we're talking about, meaning that there are people who work in the wealth defense industry who are starting to defect 
who are starting to say, no, I don't want to give my whole life work to just helping rich people get richer. Uh, some of them are leaking data. Some of them are exposing some of these tax dodges. Uh, so that's cracking. And you see President Biden say, no, we should have a, an infrastructure bill and it should be paid for by closing down these corporate tax loopholes. And you have Janet Yellen saying, we should have a global corporate minimum income tax. Um, and more and more people talking about enforcement, what we were talking about earlier. So, you know, it's starting to look like the pressure is building. And that fascinating polling information said 40, 45% of the population support the president's infrastructure bill. But when you put it together with something that cuts down corporate tax abuse and corporate tax shelters, the support goes up to 65%, meaning it's actually more popular when it's connected to something that taxes corporations and the wealthy. So that I think that tells us the times they are changing a bit in a good way. Yeah, that's good. And that's actually understandable because a lot of people are hesitant about the government just printing money to, or, you know, just going further and further into debt in order to fund infrastructure. Of course, what we're supporting and we've written, I've written about and we've talked about is the, the National Infrastructure Bank bill where, where it would be on a Roosevelt uh, Reconstruction Finance Corporation model where basically it wouldn't cost the treasury. <laughs> but anyway, there's all that. Yeah, agreed. Um, an and even I, better I like, approach. <laughs> yeah. Sorry? An even better approach. What you're <laughs> The infrastructure bank. Yeah. yeah. Elizabeth Warren's bill would tax, I think it was um, 2% on people with $50 million or more and 3% on billionaires. So that's not going to hurt even ordinary millionaires. You know, like it used right. to be when I was a kid, if you were a millionaire, you were like really rich. And nowadays, a millionaire is kind of ordinary. Um, but up to 50, 50 million is definitely they can afford to slough off two percent you would think <laughs> without without absolutely hurting. i mean actually there's a bunch of tax proposals that i think should be on the menu and that uh people with you know unless you're in the top one tenth of one percent the the we should raise the first five or six trillion in new revenue from that top one tenth of one percent there's a proposal called a millionaire surtax, which is a 10% income tax surcharge on incomes over 3 million, whether the income comes from capital investments or from work. That would raise 660 billion over 10 years. Uh, you could have a very targeted um, capital gains tax, just treat capital gains as ordinary income above a certain level. Uh, Senator Sanders has proposed a, uh, an inheritance tax or a state tax that closes down some of the worst loopholes in the current system. And then Senator Warren's wealth tax, which would raise $3 trillion over 10 years from, as you point out, Helen, people with $50 million or more. So anybody listening to this program with less than $50 million in wealth will not pay that tax. And I think that's important to be able to say that. Yeah. Because people know these folks have done very, very well, not just during the pandemic, over the last 30 years. And yeah. even 2 or 3% is not much. I mean, what about back in the Beatles day when they were complaining about, nine, you know, 5% for me, 95% for you or whatever it was. That's right. I mean, we had serious wealth taxes after 
World War II and it served the country. I mean, the country did well. That was the age of the middle class when people, when we really did have a more level playing field. And, and you know, you could with the single one, the father could go to work and the mother could stay home and raise the four kids and you could pay for the house and put the kids through college. And, you know, that was doable for nearly everyone with that, with some racial that was the Yeah, that was the formula. The Under the socialist presidency of Dwight Eisenhower, we, we taxed income and wealth at very high levels and it was invested in public investments and infrastructure and first-time homebuyer loans and the GI Bill. And, and as you say, Ellen, it, you know, it excluded uh, black and brown people, you know, either by law or by practice. So it, it wasn't ideal. It wasn't the ideal program we want to replicate, uh, you know, but a lot of white people's families got on the wealth building express train mm-hmm. to building the middle class. And if it wasn't, if we could do it without racial exclusion, it would be a good formula tax the wealthy. This is the Nordic countries. Tax high incomes, tax wealth, invest in public goods, invest in higher education and access to job training for everybody. So you don't, you know, you lose your job, you go back and get retooled and reschooled, but you don't have to go into decade of debt to be able to to learn new skills. That's, That's possible. I'm curious about your view about AOC's comment that there shouldn't be any billionaires, that they shouldn't be allowed to be a billionaire. That doesn't fit the American dream, whatever that's supposed to mean. But what's your feeling about yeah, that? 999 million would be enough for me. Yeah, yeah, you could get by on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I have to say when I hear that, when people say, you know, there shouldn't be any billionaires, there's a little exterminist whiff to that that yeah. i think sounds here's how i would phrase it Bill, having billionaires is not an indicator of social health it is not something we should aspire to and the, the fact that they're you know in 1983 there were 15 billionaires and as of last week there were 719 that is a, a system breakdown means that too much of society's rewards are going to too few hands. And so we should work to create a society where there are fewer billionaires and more thousand heirs and more 10,000 heirs uh, and more hundred thousand heirs. And that's, that's, I think what we want. And I, uh, you know, so it's not like you're going to, you know, hang all the billionaires in a guillotine or, you know, some people might want to do that. I personally think that isn't uh, the, the solution. The solution is fix the rules of the economy so we grow together, not pull apart. Yeah, another another solution you talk about is transparency. And it does seem to me the more you expose these tax dodges and what's really going on, really shine a light on it, people become more and more outraged. And then they're more willing to insist on whatever, uh, you know, a more fair tax uh, schedule or what. Yeah, so that's what you're doing and I'm doing. <laughs> you know, what we're all trying to do is expose what's what's really happening and get the people riled up so that we you know we will see some change yeah and actually a very interesting thing happened at the end of last year uh congress passed something called the corporate transparency act Mm -hmm. Uh, it was part of the defense authorization act and it trump signed it into law what does that do it requires pardon me corporations 
to disclose who their real beneficial owners are mm. to the treasury department, something that people have been working on for 10 years. Mm. Um, that is really important because right now you can incorporate in Delaware and you don't have to say who the owners are. And there's a lot of illicit finance and shenanigans that happen because these corporations not only have privacy, but they have complete secrecy from law enforcement. So in a lot of our cities, uh, the, all this luxury housing that's being built uh, and purchased, no one knows who's buying these units. Mm -hmm. It could be a Russian oligarch. It could be some dictator from Africa who stole money from their own people and is bringing it here. Um, there's all kinds of ways in which uh, transparency would help, including country by country reporting. So a lot of global companies they play all kinds of games with their wealth and their income. But what if every country disclosed, here's what Apple pays in our country. Here's what Amazon pays in our country. Mm -hmm. And so all, all these countries can get together and say, yeah, okay, we need to have a fair tax system globally where these multinational companies can't play these games. So transparency will build outrage. I mean, we already know, whatever, 55 U.S. giant U.S. companies paid no taxes. Profitable companies last year paid zero taxes. Uh, so, and part of that is that they get to play games internationally. So, transparency is really important. You said the, that the U.S. is a destination for laundering money. Can you tell us a little bit how that materializes. Yeah, I think that you know, due to great reporting like the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers. We kind of think of uh, illicit money as something that happens offshore. It's out there in the Cayman Islands or British Virgin Islands or mm. Panama or something like that. What's happened in the last 15 years is actually starting under President Obama, the U.S. started to crack down on U.S. citizens putting their money in Swiss bank accounts. The old Swiss bank account uh, strategy is over because we have a a treaty with Switzerland now that says they have to report on the deposits of US citizens. So we've started to crack down and the European countries have gone much further now in requiring that kind of transparency. But now the US is the laggard. We're the weak link now because we don't have that transparency system. We don't share information with other countries. And so, yeah, if you're trying to hide money from around the world, you bring it here to the United States. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this huge inflow of, uh, you could call it illicit finance or kleptocratic capital is coming to the US. Um, they, they're not able to put it in our public banks though. So they, they can only go to the banks where they can you know, open an anonymous account. If, um, on that, the, the private banks around the world are really just the, you know, the, best, the, the, the mechanics for this money to be, uh, but can you say some more about how banks contribute to that uh, kleptocratic uh, um, function? Yeah, again, about 10 years ago, there were all these examples of banks that were allowing illicit funds. And now starting to, there's, you know, there's now if you're in the United States, you have to do this know your customer disclosure. You have to say that, you know, you know who the depositor is. You have to, mm. they can't just be anybody. They can't, uh, but I call it the library card level of disclosure. You know, uh -huh. if you were going to your local public library 
and you and uh, you, you you say well, hi uh you know walt goes into the library and he said i'd like to get a library card. well what's your name oh i don't want to give you my name oh well where do you live well i'm not going to give you my address i'm sorry walt you're not going to be able to borrow books here because you have to tell us these two really important pieces of information well so what we're asking for is the library card <laughs> level of disclosure for corporations Sure. Um, and if you change the owner of your limited liability company, you have to disclose that. Mm. And that would, you know, that would help us. And banks would have to fo follow that. So when you open an account, well, who are you? Who's the real owner of this account? Yeah. Uh, if you're a limited liability company or some corporate entity, every year you have to file an annual filing. Oh, the ownership compositions change. Now Ellen is one of the owners, you know, that, that, so, so banks are starting to be, there's more scrutiny of bank accounts. There still are countries that have, that are not part of the community of nations when it comes to transparency. And they still are the, like weak links, uh, like, the, like the Bermuda uh, is a weak link in that. And so you see, if you're trying to hide something, you'll take your accounts to one of these countries that has weak re reporting requirements. I'm really interested in the mindset of, you know, giving up your wealth, or it does seem to me the more we have disclosure and transparency and so forth, and people realize the virtues of doing the right thing, et cetera. So how do we, how do we get that mindset to infect other people? Well, what I did was, was rather unusual, but I think there are a lot of people who believe that to have a healthy society and a healthy economy they can't hide their money. They need to pay their fair share of taxes. This whole network, the Patriotic Billionaires Network, is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. They're publicly out there saying, we should pay more taxes. It's not good for society. It's not good for them. You know, and I, 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 uh, I talked to, there's a whole generation of sort of younger, uh, wealthier people. They're entrepreneurs or they're inheritors of wealth. And they say, why? I go to the advisors and they, and they tell, tell them the same thing they told me, don't touch the principal, don't touch the asset, keep building the nest egg, pass it on to your children and grandchildren. If you give some of it away, keep it in a family foundation. Their whole orientation is preservation accumulation. And it's funny, I just met these two uh, wealth advisors who are from England and they're saying, we're creating a new wealth advisory firm to help people diminish their wealth in a responsible, meaningful way. Meaning that they, you know, they say, look, Ellen, you have 50 million. We'll help you get it down to 10 million over the next couple of years. We'll help you figure out how to do social investing, high impact social investing and philanthropy and paying your fair share of taxes. And it's like, it turns on its head, the whole industry's bias toward uh, protecting and growing and, and sequestering. So yeah, I consider that a positive sign that there's a market for people yeah. who are going to help the rich wind it down uh, mm -hmm. so that and uh, make make sure that their children have to go back to work someday. We can't, you know, you can't take it with you. And so this sense of, well, I'll leave it to my kids. But as you point out, your kids might not be all that moral either. They might be ne'er-do-wells. So it seems to me what you really want to leave, if you're going to leave something, is something that you build that actually contributes to society. I mean, like for me, of course, it's writing. And for you, you've got books out there. 
so but there you know other arts or whatever you know something I'm whatever something that serves the people that that will last a while is more lasting than your own family which may not <laughs> which may not carry on the traditions that you actually want I think that's a really a great point the, the you know it's to ask the question what's your legacy do you want your legacy to be that you've passed the money down a, bl a narrow bloodline or do you want your legacy to be that we reduced poverty we reduced inequality we increased public health and access to to uh health for all children you know the ultimate legacy is not your own children but all children right you want the the, the lives of all children to be improved. So it's changing the metric a little bit about what your legacy is can change how people look at this. And that's, you know, or in the, in the case of some families, it may be that the wealth grew or was extracted, but there was harms caused along the way. Maybe the wealth should be returned to heal the harms, you know, I saw this with the Rockefeller family. They've acknowledged oh, oil seemed like a good idea in 1910, but now we know excessive burning of fossil fuels is bringing us to uh, the brink of ecological ruin. So they have repositioned all the philanthropic work within some of the Rockefeller funds to offset and invest in a clean energy future. To me, that there's something poetic about saying, wow, we're going to use this wealth to heal society from the harms caused by the extraction of the wealth. Um, and and, uh, and that's, that's kind of what I've been trying to push the people I know who are in that fortunate situation uh, to, to think about fixing the future, not just making it worse. You had uh, spoken of um, people who are coming into their careers, that your recommendation there is that they not work for the billionaires, kind of a, just a, an axiomatic mandate just don't do that speak to us about that a little bit because i think what we're talking about here is off of legacy is you know what do our lives matter what are our relationships really about what should our work be yeah you know part of this comes from having interviewed all these people who work in the wealth defense industry who are miserable who realize that you know as the poet mary oliver says you've you know, how do you want to spend this one precious life that you've been given and that they spent 30 years of that precious life helping the rich get richer? Or they've told themselves, oh, well, I'm just helping this family, but they've come to realize, okay, they're helping one of the richest families in the world at the expense of all the other families. And what I've noticed is young people today go to, you know, they get into something like the Harvard Business School, they may have to take on some debt to get, get there. But more, they're thinking, okay, I'm going to get a really good job and I'm going to be able to support my family and I'm going to be able to have a really high lifestyle. And they get locked in to a level of consumption because they're earning, you know, they graduate and they, they're paid $250,000 in their first year out of business school. And next thing you know, they've got some very high fixed costs and they're in this soul-sucking, mind-numbing job of just helping some billionaire get richer. So in my uh, mock commencement speech, although it's not too late to be, to be invited, I guess, for, for May, in my mock commencement speech to the Harvard Business School of graduating class of 2021, I just say, look, there's so much more meaningful work to be done. Join, be, bring your talents and help start 
a public banking institution in your community. Work for a public bank. Work for a work for the new uh, you know public infrastructure bank. Work for a local housing authority. Work to help uh, the worker owners of a company uh, buy out you know the Chobani yogurt and own it as a worker-owned business. You know, like there's so much other meaningful needed work with people with those kind of skills and talents don't work for the billionaires don't work for this wealth defense industry don't even work for their foundations to legitimate their wealth and that was really that's really the message because when you're younger you can you have more choices and you haven't locked yourself into a certain standard of living and you you know you you can make it and don't don't be like well i'm going to do this work for the billionaires for 10 years and then I'm going to make a lot of money and then I'll go off and do something good. It's like, no, we don't have 10 years. We need you now. We need your skills now. So I think that was kind of my message to younger people who, uh, and and also to remind them that there are a lot of really unhappy people working Mm -hmm. in that sector. And when I talk to them, they say, I wish I'd done something different with my life. And you would never wish that on anyone that they look back over their life and say, I really wish I'd done something different. Yeah, I, rem- I remember reading it. I don't even remember what it was. But it was just a woman talking about what a fulfilling life she'd had. And she'd met the man of her dreams and they'd had kids and they traveled all over. It turned out they were migrant workers, you know, traveling around picking, picking fruit or whatever. But that was fulfillment to her. You know, it's all relative. And, and my ex-husband worked... I mean, I, we were both lawyers in Los Angeles, and, but he worked for a very high-pressured firm doing bankruptcy law, and it would, he finally quit, and he wanted to go abroad, so we, he took a job with USAID, but then they offered him head of the department and a raise and all this stuff, so he came back, and he lasted a week, and he literally got sick, like he threw up because he just couldn't, wow. this is corporate bankruptcy, you know, where you're mm-hmm. basically getting rid of the, the, you know, the workers' rights, whatever. So, you know, there's just that, you just can't do it. No matter how much money they're going to pay you, it's just not satisfying. In the common sense of our commons, our sense of the commons is so changed in our culture. We have such a strong a sense of independence as if we live alone or could live alone. You speak about the commons and invigorating them and investing in them. Do the wealthy just not care so much about that because they have such a, an isolated bubble existence that they, they don't revere the commons or even recognize that, that they need their attention? Hmm. That's a great question. You know, first of all, a lot of the wealth that accrues to the very wealthy has been plundered from the commons. It's been plundered from the ecological commons or the social commons or because they've been able to set up a toll booth on the new technological commons or something like that. So even if they don't acknowledge the commons, they certainly benefit from it. And, you know, I think that um, sort of on a, on a deeper level, I think when people have a lot of wealth, and I, and I write more about this in the book Board on Third Base, which is more about advantage, the more wealth people have, the more disconnected they are from the commonwealth, from the community from authentic relationships, uh, privilege and wealth is a disconnection drug, keeps people apart, keeps people from being in vulnerable reciprocal relationships. And uh, 
so, you know, part of my message to people with tremendous wealth is, look, really, how much month, how much do you really need? And how is this wealth actually keeping you apart from the rest of humanity? Um, and my invitation is come home, you know, wealthy folks, come home, bring your wealth out of the shadows, help build a public banking sector, help build vibrant community economic institutions, um, help build the commonwealth, not just individual mountains of wealth, and uh, that you will benefit from living in that society. The antidote to the disconnection drug is connection. And that is our human, you know, and, and sometimes that's inconvenient or, you know, you don't get what you want because you're living in a democratic society where your needs are weighed and measured with others. Yeah. That's part of the human experience. Yeah. Mel and I were both delighted to know of your interest in public banking and uh, working with our colleagues in Boston and, and elsewhere. Uh, how do you see public banking uh, fitting into the ecosphere of, of, of finance and, and the future of, uh, of, of the commons? Yeah, I think of it as, um, you know, what is the vision of a healthy financial sector in a democratic society without grotesque inequality? What are the institutions? What does credit and banking look like? How do we ha recognize that, you know, so much of the wealth is commonwealth and it belongs to the community and belongs to the society and it is our tax dollars and our investments. And, you know, instead of turning that over to a predatory private banking sector, how do we hold that in healthier institutions. So I, I, I would come back to saying there's, you know, one of the challenges is how do you build up the good? How do you build up the vision of what kind of society we want while stopping the bad, stopping the predatory looting and the destructive parts of the society? And I think we're talking about both sides of that. You know, a public banking system is where we want to be. And it's very hard to do that in a society with this whole shadow banking, predatory finance system, speculative finance system. So we want to shut down the casino economy and build up the healthy real economy. And that's where I think what we're talking about here are, are two parts of the same strategy to get to the same place. My experience is wealthy people know how unsustainable this current economic situation is. Um, and that, uh, you know, let's just say we stay on the same trajectory that we've been on for the last 40 years, stay on that trajectory another 20 years, where will we be? And it's going to be not any, not the kind of society most people are wanting to live in. We're going to become more like Brazil, where you've got this super rich elite living behind walls, you know, taking their kids to school in their bulletproof Mercedes Benz with, with bodyguards. You're going to have a shrinking, precarious middle class hanging on like a little barnacle. And you're going to have this growing, precarious, and angry and dispossessed population. Um, and that's where we're heading. You know, if we don't intervene and figure out how to turn and reverse these inequalities, that's where we're going. And uh, Thomas Piketty, the French economist, says, you know, that that will become a hereditary aristocracy uh, of power and wealth, where the rich, the, the sons and daughters of the billionaires, the Bezos children and the Gates children and the 
next generation of Waltons will dominate our economy, politics, you know, culture, and philanthropy. There will be these the big private foundations that will extend the influence of these rich families. That's where we're heading. So, yeah. you know, part of it is to come back to this, you know, well, what is it? Where do we, you know, that's not good for anybody. That's not, I would argue that's not the kind of society rich people are going to want to live in. And some of them will still try. They're, you know, you hear about these rich people buying, you know, landing strips in New Zealand and with farms and mountain castles or they're putting in electric, uh, you know, fortifications. Like, good luck to you because that's illusory. We are one planet. We are webbed together. Your children aren't going to want to go for that. Your grandchildren will rebel. That's not going to be, that's not sustainable. The, the, the real path forward is to rejoin humanity, bring the wealth of the commons that you've alluded, bring it back to the society, invest it in ways that create equality and harmony and health for everybody. That is actually in the yeah. deepest self-interest of the wealthiest people mm-hmm. in the world. Thanks very much, Jeff. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Alan and, and Walt. Thanks, Jack. That's Chuck Collins. His new book is The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Spend Millions to Hide Trillions. You can find out more about the wealth defense industry and Chuck's book at wealthhoarders.com. And for more information on the impacts of wealth inequality, uh, we suggest you go to inequality.org, which we'll talk about Chuck's book, but also many of the related issues that are there. We would encourage you to to get your book from Chuck uh, at at your local bookseller, if at all possible. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.